is Bloomberg Surveillance. The volatility is a result of a buildup over many, many years, Fed-sponsored, of carry trades. We need our banking sector to be able to make mistakes, because they're all human, without bringing down the whole economy or requiring a bailout. The pressures that most companies feel are not translating into the kind of investment that I think we need to drive economic growth in America or anywhere else. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen. Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. Good morning on Bloomberg Radio Plus. We welcome you. Bloomberg.com, Bloomberg 1200 Boston, 99.1 FM, Washington, 1130 here in New York. And waking up, we say a good morning to San Francisco and 960, the Bay Area. We need to look at foreign exchange, which just simply means we need to look at cable. The Forex Brief brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. Here's what hasn't happened. Euro somewhat weaker fractionally, a 109.99. Make it a 110 dollar stronger fractionally. The sterling fractured from 141 down to 138.80. A little bit of a bid in the last hour, 139.31. But uh, Francine Lacroix truly shocked uh, earlier at the plunge from 40 down to a 38 uh, handle. The German 10-year yield has done better in the last hour, but made a dash for new recent low yields, not record low yields. Positive. 0.153 0.153 as well. Futures up 16, Dow futures up 140. And, uh, you know, within foreign exchange, pretty much a, a churn. A, a, a renminbi a little bit weaker uh, today within that managed peg, uh, to say uh, the least. Uh, Michael McKee, a most interesting guest, who he has a tattoo. I don't know if you knew this. He's got a tattoo on his left tennis arm. It says 18 million or bust. He got that tattoo made in Detroit. Like five years ago, <laughs> 18. Did you ever think we get to 18 million units of your American automobile business? How did you know I was left-handed? Well, I just knew that. You know, I do my that. research. Okay. Steve oh, Ratner sure. with us, of course, and was the car czar for uh, too long, of course. Uh, joining us on uh, investment. Did you did you no, ever frame I, no, we, 18 we, million? Never, never did we think it would be 18 million. And we actually, as you know, we restructured these companies to make money at 11 million because we weren't really sure where it was going to go from there. I thought 15 was possible because that was the replacement rate. You needed to get to 15 just to keep the fleet from aging. But this is great news, obviously, for yeah. the car companies, for the country. Mike, before you jump in with Steve Ratner, I do want to do the disclaimer that, uh, as is publicly known, you handle philanthropic and investments for Michael Bloomberg. He is the principal owner of Bloomberg LP and this radio station. Michael? And all that. Uh we are sort of uh, playing off, of, I'm sure you heard Jack Lou's remarks, yes. um, playing off of those and asking people is the only thing we have to fear, uh, fear itself right now. You're uh, the first one we've had in sort of representing the Wall Street side. Um, the, the economist's view is that, no, uh, the, the fundamentals are not that bad, particularly in the United States. Uh, and the policymaker side is that, you know, we don't need to react to every gyration in the markets. Uh So are the markets telling us something about what's going to happen, or are they reflecting something that has happened or is happening, or is this 
just uh, irrational, uh, I don't know what the opposite of exuberance is, pessimism. So remember that on one side you have the markets, which, to use the old joke, have produced nine, uh, predicted nine out of the last five recessions. On the other hand, you have the economists, and I saw the other day in the Economist magazine that the IMF, there have been 220 instances of negative GDP growth among its members in the 15 years from 2000 to 2014. The IMF failed to predict every single one of them. So economists don't have a great record of, of – they tend to be too optimistic. Markets may tend to be too pessimistic. I think Jack is basically saying the U.S. is the best house in a bad neighborhood. Can't disagree with that. He's saying that other countries need to do uh, major policy restructuring changes to improve their economies. Can't disagree with that. The only two places I would slightly differ with him are, one, I think there's still things the U.S. can do. We may be the best house in a bad neighborhood, but there's a lot of stuff we should be doing. Paint and we're the house, not. yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Fix the house, paint the house. Yeah, there's a lot to do. And secondly, I do think he is somewhat under, understating the risks. I, I don't think the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think each each region, each country has its own set of issues. But as you go around the world, you see what's going on with the euro and the European and the continent. You now see Britain kind of going off in who knows which direction. China, you've talked about a lot, so on. Brazil is a mess. So, no, there are some real things to worry about out there. And the IMF recognized that in their last forecast. They took growth rates down, as you know. Well, as someone who has to put uh, your money or the founder and majority owner's money where your mouth is, how are you approaching the world now? What are you doing to either make money or not lose money uh, around the world? Without getting into the specifics, because the majority owner does right. not want me to get into the exactly. specifics. We're not asking to talk, for his portfolio To, detail, to talk philosophically, philosophically uh, we, we, we agree with Jack. We are far more constructive about the U.S. and, and have a, a far larger exposure to the U.S. We have been very reticent about Europe. We think that the structural problems and the euro are a huge challenge for Europe, and we've been, as I say, very, very, uh, very conservative about that. We have been extremely conservative to the point of essentially being absent from places like Brazil, which scare us uh, a great deal. And the, I guess the most contrary view we have is we have been positive on China. Uh, we don't believe they know how to manage markets or how to deal with foreign exchange issues, but we still believe uh, – and we also don't believe that they are being transparent about their numbers – but we still believe fundamentally there's an enormous amount of energy in that economy and a lot of growth coming. A lot of the growth goes to nominal GDP in the animal spirit. You have a history through your journalism and your work at Lazard and uh, your investment work now of monitoring the global animal spirit. Are what we're doing is rationalizing over two, three, and five years our investment potential or our potential investment down to a new single-digit world? I think people are adjusting themselves to a new single-digit world. Actually, I left one important thing out of what we were talking about before I just should mention, which I know you've talked a lot about, which is that as important as it was to improve regulation of banks, there have been a lot of negative consequences for liquidity, um, for for lending, uh, for capital flows, and so on. And that's another huge problem that, that we face. But, no, I think the investment community is very much adjusting itself to a lower future growth rate in terms of how it looks at its uh, its investments. Does the uh, investment community then continue to take risks to try to raise that bogey because it's not acceptable to them? Did, is that one reason we see so much longing for central banks to do more? I think the investment community in general is actually being getting quite conservative. I think there is a lot of fear in the investment committee, and I think and, and we are among those. I don't think we're terrified, but I think we're being prudent about pulling back exposure, not increasing it at this moment. 
I think we all believe that there will be opportunities out of all this, certainly in the credit markets as more and more companies start to get into distressed territory or even default. But I think in terms of the equity markets, I think we're all being very, very cautious. Steve Ratner, how do you see, we've spent so much time looking at Brexit and London versus Europe. We haven't talked in ages about London versus New York. How are we doing? I think we're doing, I think we're doing exceptionally well, in part because our economy is doing exceptionally well, and also because our banks are winning. If you look around the world at banks' yeah. share of the market, for all of the, uh, the, the regulators' feet on the necks of our banks, they have actually increased their market share. You would not want to trade our banking system, uh, certainly for Deutsche Bank or Credit Lyonnais or any of those banks. And so while it is a global business, the fact that our, that our banks are, are, well, are winning makes New York how more How do you important. deal with President Kashkari, newly minted at the Minneapolis Fed, uh, uh, wanting to have a symposium, God love him, he wants to do it right, have a symposium to adjust our too-big-to-fail size. I worked with Neil uh, briefly. We overlapped at Treasury. I have a lot of respect for him, and I would say respectfully on the question of breaking up the banks, uh, he and others who advocated are completely and utterly wrong. First of all, if you look at the facts, our banking system is less concentrated than the banking system in the U.K., in Canada, in Germany, in France, and all of our principal competitors. Secondly, you are never going to break up the banks to the point where they're truly too big. No one is too big to fail. Long-term, when LTCM failed in the late 90s, that would have not been on anybody's list of things that were too big to fail, and yet it almost brought down our banking system. The way to avoid another crisis is by better regulation and being more careful about what these banks do. The financial crisis was first and foremost a failure of regulation. I'm not talking about Glass-Steagall. I'm talking about basic regulatory supervision of the quality of the balance sheets, the quality of the lending. That was really what brought on the financial crisis, not the banks getting too big. Steve Ratner, never enough time. Thanks very much for stopping by this morning. Can you come in and do an hour sometime? Sure, whenever you want. You know, I I don't, you know, I mean, Vyond went out of business on Madison Avenue. I know, it's a tragedy. No one's ever recovered. It's your fault. We should have made him the diner czar. Well, yeah. New York City. The, the reason they really went out of business is they got a B from the uh, the food inspectors, and yeah. that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. Well, okay, Steve Ratner with us. We'll get him right. back for we're, an yeah, hour. To, the diners are. Look um, at the bigger picture. We're getting back soon. Uh, here with Will Advisors. Uh, futures negative 16, Dow futures negative 139. We're watching a stronger Japanese yen, not to important levels, but nevertheless. 111.75 goes away from Abinomics. Sterling, the story, 139.36. All right, Mike and Tom with the big win in the Nevada caucuses. Donald Trump has claimed a third straight commanding victory in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, tight race for second. A deadly storm system that spawned tornadoes in Gulf Coast states last night expected to bring severe weather to Carolinas by this afternoon. The man accused of randomly killing six people in Michigan had a personal store of weapons that included handguns and long guns. But there was nothing in his past that prevented him from owning as many guns as he could afford. And Dunkin' Donuts fighting to reclaim its turf breakfast. The chain revamping its menu boards to emphasize coffee and all-day breakfast foods. A bid to remind America it served eggs and sausage during afternoon hours long before McDonald's ever got the idea. Best coffee ever. Ever? Ever, I'd have to say. And I've tried them all. I'm trying to practice huge 
I, I haven't got there yet. Huge. <laughs> well, you keep trying. It's another right. huge nine o'clock hour of Bloomberg surveillance. Uh, futures negative sixteen. Thank you for listening. Market Drivers, brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4MATIC all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts at low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew downplaying expectations for an emergency response to global market turbulence when a group of 20 finance chiefs and central bankers meet this week in China. I don't think this is a moment in time when you're going to see individual countries make the kinds of specific commitments that have been made in some other contexts that have been marked by real crisis. This is not a moment of crisis. This is a moment where there, you know, you've got real economies doing better than markets think, you know, in some cases. Lou spoke earlier on Bloomberg Radio and Television. U.S. stock index futures, meanwhile, dropping as falling oil prices continue to prey on investors' global growth concerns. S&P E-mini futures down 17 points. Dow E-mini futures down 146. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 50. DAX in Germany is down 2.4 percent. Ten-year Treasury up 10.30 seconds. The yield 1.68 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 3.8 percent or $1.20 to 30.66 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.8 percent or $22 to 12.40. 460 an ounce. The euro, $1.0985. The yen, 111.77. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. Curve flattening today. We're 100 beeps was a big story. One full percentage point between the 10-year and two-year yield. We flatten out further today. 96.6 basis points. A difference in yield. That, that's uh, of note to many people. Uh, Michael McKee, um, this is a good economist who writes with Peter Hooper over at Deutsche Bank, and he leads with the mother of all optimism charts. It, it's it's the foundation chart for why Torsten Slack or David Kelly or Mark Zandi take an optimistic tack. Torsten is with us, and uh, he makes the very good point that everybody is concerned about the impact of the financial market volatility we have seen because it may be causing problems in credit markets, which will then slow the economy. Torsten was smart enough to actually go look at credit markets, and you find the uh, the prescription has not happened. Absolutely. So if you look at overall credit growth, uh, the fascinating thing is that the Fed actually has weekly data, and the weekly data comes out every Friday at uh, 4.15 p.m., and I go and look at my Bloomberg screen and see what does the data show this week, and when you did that last Friday, you would see that there's just no evidence of credit tightening when it comes to bank lending. Bank lending is growing across all types of loans, auto loans, consumer loans more broadly, commercial industrial loans, mortgages, even commercial real estate loans. You're seeing just not much sign of a slowdown in the actual lending data. There's a lot of other indicators we worry about, but the actual data on a weekly basis, which we watch very carefully, is just not showing a credit crunch up to this point. Well, people are looking at, uh, say, uh, high-yield spreads, when did it become high yield instead of junk? High yield spreads and saying, uh, you know, the world's going to come to an end. 
Well, and that's true, and certainly we are fully aware of that. But what I think is really important is to look at page one in your finance textbook and ask the question, uh, how can companies uh, raise money if they need money? And one answer is they can go to high-yield markets. They can also go to IG markets. They can also go to the local bank. They can also go to venture capital. They can go to private equity. They can even go to other sources of financing uh, that now are becoming more popular, crowdfunding and other areas. So this basically asks the question then, well, which of these different sources of credit are actually not flowing? And it's pretty clear that uh, high yield is not doing particularly well at the moment. But remember that high yield debt outstanding only makes up around 2% of total debt in the U.S. economy, whereas the banking sector makes up a very substantial share of all credit that's flowing. So that's why I think we in financial markets, we're looking at high yield, and for that matter also at IG. But remember, IG markets are definitely open still, uh, and there's no reason to expect why they wouldn't continue to be so. So that's why it's important to say, well, what are actually the sources of financial that companies need and are those sources of financing available and the answer is in my view a resounding yes uh, markets are still functioning in particular bank credit which is by far the most important I, I look Torsten at the, the raging battle and, and nobody I, I think there's very few people talking about true recession even Lachman Achathon at ECRI is talking about good growth what does service sector inflation do is the vector up and more inflation or is it, it is, flat or rolling over? It, it is indeed pointing up. And what's really important about that is that often we debate inflation from uh, the global perspective of saying, oh, China may be slowing. So this is going to create a disinflationary impulse for the whole world, including the U.S. But remember that when you look at the U.S. CPI basket, in other words, your and my consumption and all the listeners' consumption, two-thirds of that is services. And what services means is that that's housing, transportation, healthcare, recreation, education, etc. And those services parts of the CPI basket are generally doing what is very different from what the goods part of your CPI basket is doing. I mean, we're seeing an uptick in inflation, and most importantly, we're seeing wages go up in the service sector. So that's why uh, this notion that uh, China is having a negative impact on inflation, it's true that China and emerging markets have an impact on U.S. inflation through the one-third of the CPI basket that's goods. But for the remaining two-thirds, most importantly housing, which is 30 to 40 percent, you are, it's difficult to imagine any strong impact of China on that part of the inflation basket. So the, the bottom line is I still think uh, the service sector continues to do well in the U.S., uh, and that's why uh, the Fed is obviously very alert to these uptrends we have seen in inflation more generally that are driven very importantly by services. Uh, services tend to pay less, so does, what does it take to offset the decline on the manufacturing uh, production side? Yeah, so this is a really important issue, Mike. It's the, the way I think about that is that for the last uh, one, one and a half years, the U.S. economy has been hit by two shocks, namely oil prices down and the dollar up, and those two shocks hit goods and energy much harder than it hits services. If anything, it actually lower oil prices helps services. So that's why the big question that we should be asking ourselves is, how long time will it take more before we have gone through 
the problems in the energy sector and in manufacturing. In other words, how long is the breaking distance that is left for the energy sector? How long is the breaking distance that's left for the manufacturing sector before we get out on the other side and therefore the drag on inflation and on the broader economy from energy and manufacturing mm-hmm. is going to subside? And I would argue that we are getting closer to that. At least right. we've been through that now for the last 18, um, 19 months. Torsten Slack with us with Deutsche Bank with an important research note. Where is the credit crunch? We'll continue uh, with Dr. Slack here uh, in a moment on the American uh, economy. Uh, also, we need to get the markets open. It's a rumor. Futures negative 17, Dow futures negative 149 right now in the futures. Next, the American economy. We are counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the refined Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland. It continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Jeep, the official vehicle, Killington Resort. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keen and Michael McKee, and the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. Imagine when cognitive computing shapes the experience you create for your investors. See how SEI's global operating platform can be your catalyst for business intelligence at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks lower at the open. The S&P 500 is down six-tenths percent or 12 points to 1908. Dow Jones Industrial Average down six-tenths percent or 93 points to 16,339. And the Nasdaq down 1.1% or 48 points to 44.54. Ten-year Treasury up 9.30 seconds. The yield 1.68%. Yield on the two-year 0.71%. NYMEX crude oil down 3.6% on $1.14 to $30.73 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.8% or $22.40 to $12.45 an ounce. The euro $1.0976. The yen 111.73. Tom and Mike. Uh, thank you so much, Karen. Mike, it's always interesting when the German central bank speaks, it's not like when we were kids. It was a huge deal, but it's, it's still a big deal. It's the backbone of uh, the, the background of the European central bank coming from uh, the Bundesbank. Throughout the program, we have been tracing uh, the outlook for the global economy through the eyes of policymakers and uh, analysts. And uh, we started with Jack Lew suggesting that there is no crisis in the world. Marty Feldstein agreed. Diana Troleva agreed and pushed back strongly against central banks overreacting yeah. to what we are seeing. The next central bank that everybody's got their eyes on, March 10th, the European Central Bank. What happens next with them? Our Hans Nichols sat down just a few moments ago with Jens Weidmann. He's the president of the Bundesbank. It's clear that the current price developments warrant a thorough monetary policy debate in the sense that oil prices have a major dampening influence on, 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 on prices at this uh, time. But what we must ask ourselves is to what extent this is only a short, short-term development through which we should look or to what extent it's affecting the medium-term inflation uh, outlook through second round effects or its effects on inflation expectations. So let me ask you, how would you then guide market expectations? Would you make it clear that you're focusing on this medium-term? I think it's pretty obvious uh, that we are focusing on the medium term, and nobody contests that. 
I think we need a thorough debate first on the necessity to act, and then we can have a debate on uh, the instruments at our disposal. How bad do things need to get before Jens Weidmann, president of the Bundesbank, changes his view on negative interest rates? What view on negative interest rates do you mean? Well, you seem to be fairly opposed to negative interest rates. You seem like that's not necessarily the right. It's the risk-reward payout isn't is the isn't where you'd want it. No, I think what I uh, meant to say uh, was that there are some instruments in our toolbox that I deem uh, much more problematic than others, and purchases of sovereign bonds are certainly among them. I mean, I do believe that in the currency union, uh, as the one uh, like the one we we, we have here, uh, this creates a risk of blurring the lines between uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy, that is problematic for monetary policy for its independence. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I consider purchases of sovereign debt as a ultima ratio instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other tools that you mentioned are much more conventional. And uh, in a sense, from my perspective, uh, don't have this same threshold in their in their application. But again, it's not uh, uh, about single instruments. First, we have to analyze: is there a need to act, or is monetary policy already expansionary enough? Uh, uh, given the current situation, and then we have to decide which instruments to use. So you're open to negative interest rates? We already have negative interest rates. Uh, And, uh, again, this is, uh, I mean, we are moving into uncharted uh, territory. The further we move there, uh, uh, the more we have also to carefully consider side effects uh, that these measures might create. But in principle, uh, this is what central banks do. They set their interest rates. Jens Weidmann, uh, president of the Bundesbank, speaking. Yeah, that, that was quite frank. Frankly, that 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 was a very direct set of comments. Torsten Slack with us with Deutsche Bank. Uh, Torsten, uh, with your perspective and your European perspective, how has the Bundesbank relationship changed in the last 24 months with Frankfurt and the ECB? Well, it's, uh, I would say that uh, obviously uh, Germany is a very important part of uh, the European Union and a very important part of the ECB decision-making. And, uh, of course, it's uh, critical at this uh, point that uh, we have a good debate about, uh, as uh, Weidmann says, do we need more uh, stimulus? Um, what type of stimulus uh, could be needed? And most importantly, the big experiment of negative interest rates, uh, uh, how much further can that go uh, without uh, creating uh, mm. uh, unintended consequences? And what is the Deutsche Bank Torsten Slock view? Is it, are negative interest rates, especially in big economies like the Eurozone, working? Do they need more? I have been surprised that uh, it actually has worked so well in Denmark, Sweden, and Switzerland, and uh, also, of course, for the ECB. Uh, but up to this point, I think the conclusion is that uh, it is working. Uh, the big uh, question becomes uh, now uh, negative interest rates are only modestly negative at minus 0.75. Uh, and what if we do push negative interest rates much further down, uh, you do start to wonder uh, what the implications could be and if this will be as effective as the economic textbook uh, would simply suggest. Uh, because the economic textbook is very clear. It says just lower interest rates, and even if you lower them negatively, that should not be 
a big problem. Uh, but the problem, of course, becomes, uh, in, in particular in the practical discussion of negative interest rates, do you have negative interest rates both for depositors, do you have for corporates, uh, should you have a two-tier deposit system, uh, will people mm -hmm. start to react uh, from an incentive perspective yeah. of negative interest rates? So a lot of uh, uh, unanswered questions uh, in this uh, experiment uh, that uh, that's uh, being carried out at the moment. Well, let's get back to your research. Uh, negative interest rates certainly work if you want to drive people away from your currency, as the Danes and the Swiss did. Uh, but in terms of the theory that it boosts lending, because banks would rather lend at a small positive rate than deposit cash at the, at the central bank and have to pay for it, is lending rising? Is credit more available now in the Eurozone? So the issue becomes that once you cut through zero, uh, in theory, exactly as you say, Mike, you should see more lending because uh, if interest rates are plus 50 basis points or minus 50 basis points, that uh, shouldn't at least create a nonlinear effect around zero. But what is a very significant nonlinear effect around zero is, of course, confidence. Uh, there's a lot of confidence, uh, there are confidence issues around whether uh, zero is a magic yeah. number. And that confidence uh, effect on the negative side could mean, right. in the worst case, that consumers and corporates start holding back because they're losing confidence in whether this experiment is working or not. Yeah, Torsten Slack, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank. And uh, Professor Summers of Harvard, Larry Summers, has made a huge deal about this overlay of confidence upon our monetary and, indeed, our fiscal certitude as well. What we know is certain, looking at the Bloomberg uh, the Dow negative 182, the VIX up a good stick, 0.48, 1.48 points, 22.46, sort of captures the angst of the morning. I do need to convey that it's a lot better than it was two and a half hours ago. Looking at sterling as the immediate proxy, 138.80 was stunning. We've come back with a bit stronger sterling in the last Oh, 90 minutes, 139.15 on cable this morning. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit volvocarswhiteplains.com. Here's John Tucker. Well, Donald Trump's dominating victory of the Nevada caucuses pushes him further out ahead of his nearest competitors for the Republican presidential nomination, giving his unorthodox candidacy a major boost heading into Super Tuesday contest next week. Hillary Clinton doesn't just want to beat Bernie Sanders in South Carolina. She wants to beat expectations. She is running more than 20 points ahead of Sanders in most polls, heading into Saturday's Democratic presidential primary, buoyed by overwhelming support from the state's black voters. And members of Congress will hear more about the Zika virus today as the CDC investigates 14 new cases of possible sexual transmission. The House Oversight Committee will be getting updates from the CDC and the National Institutes of Health. And Uber Technologies starting its very first motorcycle taxi service in Bangkok, where congestion leads to rush hour traffic speeds in the Thailand capital of just about seven miles per hour. My town in New Jersey is so small, we don't have Uber. We have a guy who drives around in a pickup. You just jump in the back. Just jump in the back. And His name is Goober. Goober. <laughs> I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how Uber expands out. A motorcycle? Uh, into this. Yeah. Yeah. Not there either. Uh, oil, uh, West Texas down a dollar twenty-two. That's a deterioration through the morning. Thirty dollars sixty cents. Decidedly not through any level of support that we've seen over the last couple days. Brent thirty-two fifty-two, down a lesser amount. 
0.75. This is the greater part of Bloomberg surveillance. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Flushing Bank. Open a complete business checking account with $15,000 or more and get a free 16-gig Wi-Fi tablet. Visit FlushingBank.com for details. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. And stocks this morning are moving lower, sliding further from a six-week high reached on Monday as falling oil prices continue to prey on investors' global growth concerns. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 down 1.3% or 24 points to 18.96. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1.3% or 212 points to 16,219. The Nasdaq down 1.5% or 67 points to 44.36. Ten-year Treasury up 1830 seconds, the yield 1.66%, yield on the two-year 0.70%. NYMEX crude oil down 3.5% or $1.14 to $30.73 a barrel. COMEX gold up 2.1% or $25.50 to $12.48.10 an ounce. The euro, $1.1002, the yen 111.51. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew saying the U.S. wants a more serious commitment from other G20 countries to use monetary policy, fiscal measures, and structural reforms to stoke demand. Lew made the comments ahead of a meeting of a group of 20 finance chiefs this week. Fiscal policy can't solve all the problems. There are structural issues that need to be addressed. Uh, some, in some countries, it's regulatory. In some countries, it's labor markets. In some countries, it's financial reform. Those structural issues need to be addressed. But fiscal and monetary policy are important tools. When used together, they're powerful. And that, that's the message we bring. Lou is heard earlier on Bloomberg Radio and Television. And Lowe's is lower, down 3.25% after posting fourth quarter results that trailed Home Depot's, signaling that the retailer isn't benefiting as much from the U.S. housing market's gains as its larger rival. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Negative 218, as Karen mentioned, on the Dow, the VIX 22.58. Quickly, equity markets this morning, odd in foreign exchange, odd across all markets. David Wilson, is your world odd? It, it has its moments. I mean, Karen Moscow just mentioned Lowe's, and that stock down 3.2% after their fiscal fourth quarter earnings only matched analysts' uh, average estimate in the Bloomberg survey, while rival Home Depot came out ahead. We also got numbers out of Target and uh, TJX, the company that owns TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods, and really sort of a mixed bag for both, and it's reflected in their shares. Target down just three-tenths of a percent at the moment. Uh, last quarter's profit trailed the average projection because they were relied more on price cuts and promotions. On the other hand, uh, their earnings forecast for this fiscal year beat, us, beat estimates. With, with TJX, really little changed at this point. Uh, their fiscal year earnings forecast was lower than analysts expected. Fourth quarter, though, uh, of last year, uh, earnings and sales coming out ahead. Ford Motor 
down 6.4%. Another noteworthy move. The automaker cut the equivalent, cut the equivalent of sell from hold at Credit Suisse. The firm citing overly optimistic sales projections, excessive inventories, and cost increases. And you're seeing a couple of other auto-related declines as well. One of them in Mobileye. This is a company that makes software for self-driving cars. Down about 11%. They gave a profit forecast for this year that failed to meet estimates. And Avis Budget Group, the car rental company, down 20%. Uh, their earnings forecast for this year failed to meet estimates. They talk about a stronger dollar and spending to improve customer service. Uh, David Wilson, thank you so much. Lee Hardman with us. He is with Bank of Tokyo uh, Mitsubishi. Lee, did you get out from under the desk early this morning? How do you interpret a drop like that in cable? Yeah, like you say, Tom, it's, uh, we're in very volatile times across all uh, foreign exchange markets right now. In particular, the pound is very much in the uh, the, the crossfire for the market. Uh, the market is uh, moving to uh, pricing a, a higher uh, risk premium um, ahead of the uh, the EU referendum uh, in June. Is is there a uh, one way bet? I mean, tell me about the speculation upon sterling. Yeah, I think very much so. The market has uh, increasingly a one way view uh, on sterling ahead of the referendum, um, with the uh, the risk seeing. Uh, very much skewed uh, to the downside. Uh, we've already had a obviously a significant uh, weakening of the pound already this year. The cable's down by now almost 10 big figures uh, since the end of last year. But if we look at the pound on a, on a trade-weighted basis, it's still around sort of 15% higher than, than the lows we saw during the, uh, the global financial crisis. And also, uh, if you go back uh, even uh, further than that to after uh, the UK's exit for the, from the ERM, uh, in the early 1990s, it was also about 15% lower as well on that occasion. So we still think there's, there's scope for further downside uh, if, a, if a Brexit was to materialize. So that's not our base case scenario, but um, I think the market will become increasingly uh, worried of that scenario as we move closer to the, uh, the referendum. Well, have we seen a big move? Uh, are we going to see a lot more volatility between now and June 23rd? Is it, is, is, are we priced in to that point, or is there still downside? Well, yeah, I think there's certainly scope for the market to uh, to, to price in uh, an even larger uh, Brexit risk premium uh, ahead of the uh, the referendum. And like you say as well, I, I do think as well we will see uh, uh, an increase in, in volatility as well for the pound. Um, obviously, increasingly, the market will be driven um, by uh, event risk. We'll be obviously closely following uh, the incoming uh, opinion polls to see uh, if there's any material shifts in, in public thinking uh, ahead of the, uh, the referendum. And then also there's obviously uh, other risks such as obviously the migration crisis uh, in Europe and then also perhaps a, an even smaller risk perhaps would be potential for another flare-up in, in Greece. Those kind of things are obviously not anticipated but yeah. could obviously have a, a negative impact as well on, on the, uh, the Brexit risk. When we start talking big-figure moves like 139, 38, 37, those one-point moves, folks, is a, a big figure. Are big figure moves an opportunity, or are they reason to put on hedges to protect yourself? Which is it? Well, I think certainly you would be uh, looking to, uh, to, to, to to protect yourself against uh, the, the, the risk of uh, a further sharp decline in, in, in the pound. Uh, I think certainly the, the, the risks are, are skewed uh, towards further weakness uh, as, as we move forward. Um, 
in terms of the volatility, um, certainly it's becoming the, the pace of the pound's decline is becoming more rapid. But uh, like I said earlier, we have seen periods where the pound has even declined even more rapidly, like during the um, global financial crisis period and also after the uh, exit from the ERM. So, yes, historically becoming more extreme in terms of volatility, but um, the, the, the potential if, if Brexit uh, was to occur, that uh, you could see a, an even larger spike in volatility. And um, I think the risk of Brexit, although it's, 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 we think it's, it's, it's around sort of 35%, that's still a, a fairly material material risk how, that the market will, will be wary of. Not to go into the sophisticated math, but how far apart are the dynamics of sterling dollar versus euro sterling? Well, our, our view has been that... Um, the, the, the Brexit risk would would pose more of a downside risk uh, for the pound against the dollar. I think that's that's the uh, the cleaner cross to to play the Brexit risk. Because ultimately, uh, if there was to be uh, a Brexit event, that would also have uh, some potential uh, negative spillover uh, impact uh, on, on the rest of Europe as well, which uh, could materialise in um, some uh, offsetting. Uh, euro weakness. I, th- I still think uh, you'd see euro sterling likely go up uh, towards kind of mid mm. mid 80s, uh, but um, I, I would expect mm. that pound weakness would be more dampened against against the uh, the euro than than say against the dollar. Lee Harbin, thank you so much, Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, uh, this morning. Mike, we've got some real market deterioration. Um, Apple, just as one example, up against support uh, going back to late January, ninety three dollars sixty nine cents. Uh, sort of a 93.42 is uh, that point earlier. Uh, 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 the, the markets are open, but on a futures basis, S&P was negative 24 right now, which is not what we saw at the opening. There's, there's a weight to the market here at 955, 9.56. Uh, we have seen this correlation with energy prices for quite some time, and I'm watching oil today down but not but yeah. not breaking not even yeah. close to resistance at this point so you got to yeah. wonder um you know what's driving yeah. oh there's a fear that's developed in the last 48 36 48 <clears throat> hours it doesn't seem to be related to what right. we've seen in the past sterling has rebounded off an ugly ugly morning again that's a glimmer of hope but i would note uh, yields are in uh, decisively. The 10-year German, again, making a move down to recent lows. The two-year uh, German, not quite there yet. But in the U.S., uh, the 10-year yield is in seven big figures, 1.66%. That begins to get my attention. Interesting. Yeah. Also, a uh, statistic here I'm looking at. We had a little bit of a rally going into this week, and volume moved up in general during that period. But now we're seeing this decline on lower volume each day. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of conviction. Um, yeah. And this gets maybe to what somebody told us not long ago, but uh, there are no, we're having a, a lack of buyers. I, I, well, I strongly agree with that. The, the, the asymmetric nature uh, going up and going down can always be interesting where it's not about selling overtly, but maybe just about no interest at hand by buyers. Whatever it is, negative 223 on the Dow. We'll give you extra data checks across all of Bloomberg Radio uh, through the day. David Wilson, important participant uh, through our day on individual uh, equities as well. We are produced in New York by YUN, our global technical director, Ken Fellio. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Again, the market 
a negative 224.